and open up to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 2. And hopefully you guys remember the keys that I told the kids so that they... uh, so that we can better understand God's word this morning. But before we jump into God's word, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it tells us about Jesus. We thank you that um, there is hope in you. And Lord, we come and confess today that Many times in our lives, it does not feel like there's hope. Many times in our lives, it's not kind of the, how Denton prayed earlier, the daily grind. And Lord, so we ask you this morning, is that all that you have for us? Just a few celebrations here and there, and then the rest is just dull, Lord, there are people discouraged here today. There are people distracted here today. There are people here who have been trying to fill their lives with all sorts of things and still feel empty. And there are those those of us here who have found you and believe that you're satisfying. but we're struggling to trust that today. We're struggling to know it. So Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, we need you to do in us today what only you can do. We need you to do in us today what we want but we often don't know that we need. Lord, please come. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Please work in us. Help us to receive your word as you have intended it. Oh Lord, please guide us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter to John chapter two in your Bibles, and hopefully, if you got if you brought one, great. If you didn't, please grab one on the pew next to you. And I have to say, thank God for the weather. And I say that because it's been many, many, many dreary days. Even though the weather hasn't been bad, like we haven't been snowed in, it's just been cloudy. How do people in the Pacific Northwest do it? But it's been cloudy, and it's been tiring and draining, and winters seem to go on and on and on. And then all of a sudden, 50-plus degree days, some sunshine. Why do you think God gives us that?
just to remind us that there's hope. Yeah, sure. There's hope in the cloudy days too. But there's a reason that he gives seasons to remind us that it's not over. And the same old, same old, the daily grind won't be forever. I mean, look at this passage that we're going to read this morning. There's hope. God is, God in Jesus has come to the earth and he's breaking in and he's breaking in in a powerful way. Why? To show people who to trust, to show people that there is hope, to show people that there is joy. And it may just be a little glimpse of it. And maybe that's, and maybe you've been suffering and struggling to find a glimpse of joy. But you know what? Just a glimpse is all we need to be reminded that there is going to be joy forevermore with Jesus. So I want to invite you to stand this morning as we read God's word, that God has joy for us. God has hope for us. Just like a couple days of sunshine in the midst of a bunch of dreary February days, God has hope and joy for us. John chapter 2 starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim and he said to them now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast so they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of Jesus' signs, he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You can have a seat. So, what do you see here? You see joy breaking in. You see joy breaking being revealed and being not being revealed in a special way in the person showing up of all places at a wedding at a wedding why do we often think of god as the debbie downer of fun things have you ever believed that if you ask yourself, or if I, I'll ask you right now, what do you believe about God? 
What were you taught about God as a kid? What were you taught about God as an, as, as an adult? And does that line up with your experience of day-to-day life? Would, be, would we be really ready to say that God is a God of joy? God is a God of celebration? In this story, this morning, the first of his signs. Do you remember what, why John wrote this letter? John chapter 20, verses 30, 30 through 31, he said, Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the first sign that Jesus does is at a celebration, is at a joyful occasion in life. Where Jesus is known, there is joy. So the first thing in this text that we need to see that covers all of this is that Jesus sets the tone for his ministry. And it should set the tone for our belief about who he is. He said, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. You know, he could have done his first sign anywhere. He could have done his first sign at the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, where everybody would have seen him and known him for who he is, the glorious son of God. That's what Satan wanted him to do. Make yourself known, Jesus. He could have easily won the whole world to himself right then. He could have even gone to Rome, to the Roman emperor and the senate there with some amazing pomp and circumstance and waltzed right in as the king of kings, who he truly is. But he doesn't do that either. And what I also find amazing is that Jesus doesn't start his ministry and start his signs with something as amazing as like raising the dead, which he gets to later. Why not start there? Water into wine? At a wedding? In a backwater local town of Cana in Galilee? You're going to do it there? Jesus sets the tone of his ministry, and it's one of joyous occasion, of celebration with ordinary people like you and me. And we often do. We often do think of Jesus coming to put a damper on things, someone who stands off in the corner of a party frowning because everybody's having fun. How often do we think of the holiness of God as though it were anti-living, anti-enjoyment, anti-delight? And how often are Christians characterized as people who are against rather than people who are for? <laughs> Look at this tone of how he sets 
how he starts his ministry, turning water into wine at a wedding so that people can enjoy and celebrate. You know what that says to me? That says God is for delight and enjoyment far more than we are. You know, the truth is, is that the one thing he can't stand, what he is against, is people thinking that sin that keeps them from him is far more enjoyable than he is. That's what he's against. What he's for is for us to have the full enjoyment, full joy, full satisfaction in him, through him. Psalms 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in what? In the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. And when your delight is in the Lord, your heart is full of desire for him. And I suspect we often get this false idea that God doesn't want us to enjoy him and life with him from our own sinfulness, from our own stiff-arming of God, and from the sinfulness of Christians who have sought, perhaps even well-intentioned, who have sought to separate God from his emotions, as if God were an unfeeling God, Emotions are for other gods. And in the free church, we have a Scandinavian and Norwegian history of emotions are for other people. But that's not Jesus. And praise God, it's not Jesus. Here he is, celebrating and celebrating with a couple he whom he may have grown up with. He grew up in this area. Delighting in the reality that they are participating in the lifelong institution, the lifelong covenant of loving relationship between husband and wife that he created. He's at a wedding celebrating what he made and people participating in it. So before we think too much that this wedding looks exactly like all the weddings that we've been to or been a part of. Here's what we, look, we need to know about Hebrew weddings in the first century. One of the, a pastor, theologian, R. Kent Hughes, writes this. He says, The wedding celebration was considered to be the most grand event in life, especially among the poor. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in the evening following a feast. After the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a torchlight parade complete with canopy held over their heads. They were always taken along the most secure, circuitous route possible so everyone would have the opportunity to wish them well. Instead of a honeymoon, they held an open house for a week. They were considered to be king and queen and actually wore crowns and dressed in bridal robes, and their word was considered to be law in lives that often contained much poverty and difficulty. This was considered the supreme occasion. Many would hold all the way through life without ever again having a celebration like this. This was a wonderful time in this couple's lives. This was a joy. And this is where Jesus shows up and manifests his glory. In 
And praise God that Jesus is there because in the next verse, verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now for us, we're just like, okay, we'll switch to water or whatever. But a glimmer of God's great plan of redemption in a wedding, in a wonderful celebration, and one of the chief symbols of joy, wine, and this wedding has run out. And here's what's happening. Behind the scenes, there's starting to be a panic. Commentator Leon Morris clues us in with the culture of the time and says this meant more than the disruption of the festivities. There was something of a slur on the hosts, a bad-mouthing, if you will, for they had not fully discharged the duties of hospitality. This may indicate that they were poor and had made the minimum provision hoping for the best. It is also possible that the lack of wine involved another embarrassment in that it rendered the bridegroom's family liable to a lawsuit. They were legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard. So when it says they have no wine, it's a big deal. The poor, this poor couple, enjoying the celebration of a lifetime, are about to get smeared across the community as unable to even take care of their guests. They were without wine and soon without hope. And you guys live in a small town, and you know that things don't just go away. They were without wine and without hope. And do you know what this situation is right here in John chapter 2? This is you. And this is me. We have in moments of enjoyment in this life. Sometimes truly high-flying experiences. But once you get to the top of the mountain, there's nothing there eventually the enjoyable experience ends. Eventually you have to come home from Disney World. Eventually the luster of life fades and you start wearing out. The new job is so long, no longer the new job, it's the new complaint department. For some of us, this is a really quick process. We come off of our highs, and then we go to a whoo, down to a sh- crushing low. And for some, it's later, later on. But it will happen, and it does happen to everyone. The things that we try to satisfy our lives with will ultimately not satisfy. Eventually, the pursuit of, and maybe you remember this phrase, YOLO, you only live once, it runs out of gas. And we see that in our culture today, don't we? The year 2010 began with the amazing promises for great progress and success after we'd cleared the Great Recession. There weren't any major conflicts. And what do we get in 2020 reviewing and reflecting on those, t- those 10 years? We have cynicism. We have disillusionment. We have disassociation. We have depression. Suicides and opioid drug use have reached epidemic levels in this country. 
Is this because everybody's having a better time? Is this because everybody's being satisfied? What is this? They have no wine. That could be translated, as someone has said, they have no joy. Their attempt to do the best on their own has finally run up and they can't finish. They have no wine. What do we need when our lives have run out of wine, so to speak? And they will. We need someone to bring wine, to bring life. We need someone to bring joy and a joy of a kind that lasts. Jesus sets the tone of his ministry and where Jesus is known, there is joy. And what does he do? He brings it. He brings the best. Verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars for there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom to him and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have saved the good wine until now. Jesus brings the best. He doesn't just bring wine. See this? Now we have to unpack something really quick here. Verses 4 and 5 don't quite sound right in our, our day and age. Because it seems, and it does seem, that Jesus and his mom have a little bit of a disagreement. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's going on here? Well, first of all, when he says woman, he's not using it derogatorily or disrespectfully. On the cross, Jesus tells his mother, Woman, behold your son. As Jesus gives his mother to be taken care of by the, by the apostle John. It's a respectful term. It's a term of endearment. But it does signify that the relationship that Jesus has with his mother or had with his mother has changed. If Jesus is going to be the, to bring the best, and he will, it has to be on his terms, not anybody else's. And everyone has to come to terms with that, including his mother. He's telling his mother two things. First, their relationship is now different than what it used to be. He will never dishonor his mother. But she has to know that he will be obeying his heavenly father exclusively. And second, he says this kind of strange phrase, my hour has not yet come. Remember this phrase. Remember it. Because it's going to come up again and again and again in the book of John. And when it does come, well, it shows up many times, his hour had not yet come. 
His hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. But when it does come, it's going to be more universe-shaking than turning water into wine. You see, he says this to Mary because he, Mary knows that her son is able to do something about this crisis. Mary has been given tons and tons of background information, and she trusts that God has given her a boy who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God. She knows all this, and that's great. But she is also human like us, and what she wants in this moment is for her son to display his full potential and get noticed. But that's not how Jesus is going to do things. In fact, when his hour does come, how does he put himself on full display? He puts himself on full display on a Roman cross. Being nailed to a piece of wood and raised up into the air so that people can scoff and mock at him. But what he's actually doing is his hour had come to rescue sinners like you and me. But it does seem in verse 5 that she understands the change in relationship, but she does know that he is going to do something about it. So he says to, so she says to the servants, do whatever she do whatever he tells you. And Jesus says, well, then the text says, now there was there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now we have to understand, again, Jewish rites of purification. What is that? <laughs> well, we have indoor plumbing. We have sinks, we have wet wipes, we have hand sanitizers. That's a really simple way of putting it. It was to wash their hands. The servants poured water on the guests so that they wouldn't defile themselves when they ate food. But do you see what that is? Do you see what this purification is? When you wash your hands, what are you doing? You're washing the outside. You're washing your hands. Are you cleaning your heart? No. Jewish rites of purification, so that they wouldn't be defiled, so that they would be made pure, it doesn't work. The Jews were concerned with external cleanliness, but they couldn't work inner transformation. True purification comes when the Son of God works total transformation. He brings the best, not that we can save ourselves by doing whatever we think are good works to save ourselves. It's all like, that's all external. The law of Moses can't save. Not even the, not the old covenant either. It's all water. But Jesus brings salvation by grace through believing in him, fulfilling the law of Moses, and establishing the promised new covenant. 
This is new wine. So here are six jars able to hold about 180 gallons of liquid altogether. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Okay. We can read this and say, yeah, that's a nice story. And I think perhaps in our day, there's maybe a little more openness than there was at one time of the supernatural going on. But we need to state the obvious here. Water doesn't just become wine in the span of a couple minutes. Jesus doesn't run out of the wedding, tread through a bunch of grapes to create 180 gallons of wine for a few hours and then bottle it, let it ferment, and then come back to the party once everyone's been back at their lives for at least a year. That's not how the story goes. No, what Jesus does here, according to physics, according to biology, according to zymology, is impossible. Water doesn't just become wine. It can't happen. And some people reject the claim of this book. That it's a book about real people, real events, occurring in real history. Because of things like this. They reject it. Water can't become wine. Well, you're right. If there's no God, you're right. But there is a God. And he has come. And actually, we have more documentation for a far greater miracle, at least in our eyes, of the resurrection of Jesus than we do any other miracle or sign. And the foundation of Christianity is that God, God, came down in the flesh to rescue sinners who had rejected him by dying on a Roman cross, the most shameful way to die and then raising, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and returning to consummate his victory. If we believe these things, which are true, we should not have a problem with water becoming wine. When the master of the feast, verse 9, tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It wasn't just wine. It was good wine. Really good wine. But again, this story really isn't ultimately about wine, is it? It's about Jesus bringing the best. And him bringing the best sets the tone for his entire ministry that he brings the best for you and for me. And where Jesus is known, there is joy. And if Jesus is known and believed, that joy is found when he reveals his glory. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, verse 11, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Two things here. One, do you believe 
that Jesus cares about the circumstances in your life? Do you believe that Jesus can act in your circumstances in life? Do you believe that God is sovereign over the circumstances of your life? Because he showed up to a no-name couple in Cana and Galilee and gave them wine for their wedding. The creator of the universe owes you nothing and owed them nothing. But yet he showed up and did it anyway. But Jesus, whenever he does something, he never does it just to do something nice. And we as Christians ought never to do something just because it's the nice thing to do or just because it's the right thing to do. Because this story isn't just about Jesus helping a bride and groom in the first century Middle East have a good time and not be disgraced. This is about his glory. And our lives are to be about his glory. Everything that we do, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Jesus turning water into wine is about the power of God coming amongst sinners in such a way that instead of killing all of us, which he is fully justified to do because of our sin, by the way, he instead blesses us. Instead of condemnation, which we're in apart from him, he makes himself known and draws near. Why? Romans 2 verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He reveals his glory so that we would believe him. Again, John's purpose in writing all that we're studying, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And his disciples believed in him. And can you imagine the look on their faces when his first disciples see rich red liquid being poured out of a pitcher instead of water? They believed him. Ordinary people don't do what this man does. <laughs> and the servants, what fools they must have felt they were when they filled up jars full of water and then Jesus asked them to take it to the master of the feast to, to basically taste test it to see if it was good. Here's some delicious water. And we're not told when the water became wine, when it hits the jar, when the water hits the jar, when the jars were filled, when the first servant scooped the pitcher in to get some, or when the master of the feast raised some to his lips. But it was wine. This is the power of God, the glory of God, showing up at a wedding feast so that they, and you and me, can believe him. That's what signs are. They are pictures of the power of God that point beyond themselves to God himself. D.A. Carson presents a good definition here that will serve for a better understanding of the signs in the rest of John in the whole book of the Bible. And he says, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, 
still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be then could be that could be received, like sorry that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. We should be amazed at the fact that water was turned into wine. We dare not get stuck there. We're told to look to the one who did it. Jesus was just an ordinary guest at that wedding until he brought joy by making himself known. And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And when God shows up to you, what's your response? See, it says he manifested his glory. Another way of saying that is he revealed his glory. And we hold in our hands what we call the revelation of God. Special revelation. God revealing himself, God speaking so that we would know him in his word. When he shows up to you, what's your response? Do you reject him outright because water can't be turned into wine? That's only true if God isn't who he says he is. Or maybe you at one time received God's grace. You believed him and the power in your life with joy, knowing that Jesus is the Savior who rescued you. But as time has gone on from then, the Christian life has felt a bit stale, not like wine but more like water that's been sitting out for too long. Where's the joy? Perhaps you've been burdened by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. If so, this is God's kindness to you to repent. God is yet at work all around you. Ask him. Ask him to show you. Ask him to open up your eyes so that you can see. Or maybe you have tried to be faithful to him. You believe what's here now. And you know that weddings don't happen all the time. Yet you are discouraged. You feel like you're in a wilderness, so to speak. Far away from the wedding where Jesus is doing joyful things. You might say that your joy right now has just turned into grit and determination. And John has a word for you, hopefully to encourage you. John 1, verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in, verse, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 5 Quotes, Joshua, our God says to his servant, to the one who believes in him, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So do not give up. For the Son of God has not left you. He will open your eyes and he will vindicate your faith even if you're slogging through the mud right now. He will vindicate it with joy. Joy. 
And you will see his wedding one day when he returns to gather his people for the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, the wedding in Cana, our own weddings were not ever to be an end in themselves. They are, again, to proclaim the glory of Jesus who has chosen for himself a bride, the church, and will be faithful to her, filling her with joy and showing her his glory. Where is our joy, church? Where is it? The sun is out today. That means that God is still on the throne. Even if it weren't out, God is still on his throne. And he has turned water into wine. And he has died on the cross. And he has risen from the dead. Where is our joy? He has not left you. He will never forsake you. Trust him. Believe him. Our joy is found in Jesus who reveals his glory. Where do we find our hope? It's in God who, as the scripture says, gives us all good things to enjoy. Yet he gives us all these things that we might believe him, trust him, and know him as he truly is. He's the God that turns water into wine. He's the God that makes the celebration better than it ever was before. Let's glorify him by believing him. 